You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning, church family. Please make your way in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3. This morning, our verses are going to be 7 through 14. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. If you're a guest with us, we have been making our way through the Gospel according to Luke. And this morning, we are picking up where we left off last week. Gospel according to Luke chapter 3. invite you to follow along as I read now God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share it with him, with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. O Lord, this is your word that you have given to us as your people. It is a gift. We want to gladly receive it. We want to submit to it. We want to be transformed by it. Lord, we confess. We confess that we often do not come to your word as we ought. You lay before us a feast to eat from your table, and yet we have been eating on the cotton candy pleasures of this world, so we don't come hungry. And we don't know the feast you have for us. So Lord, forgive us for that. And help us now by the power of the Spirit, to have ears to hear, minds that comprehend, hearts that receive. And Lord, would you transform us by the preaching of your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, as we reflected on Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we saw that John was a prophet 
sent by God in order to prepare the people of Israel so that they could receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what we took away from verses 1 through 6. God, before Jesus was to begin his public ministry, had sent this prophet named John, and his purpose was to prepare the people of Israel so that they could receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And one of the things that really stood out to me from last week's text was how John's role was not only important at that time, but John's ministry and his message are crucial for us to comprehend today as a church. One of the things that struck me from last week's text was before Jesus could come on the scene, people's hearts needed to be prepared. And that wasn't just true then, it's true today. We need God to prepare our hearts if we are going to receive and respond rightly to Jesus Christ. So as we reflect this morning now on verses 7 through 14, the text before us, I would like us to focus now on John's message. Last week we saw his ministry now we actually get to hear John open his mouth. And then we get to reflect on his message. And I believe there is one word. One word that summarizes the entire message of John. And this one word actually becomes the primary theme of Luke's gospel. It's an important word, not just to John, but to the gospel of Luke. What is this one word you ask? Repentance. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Luke tells us, and that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. According to Luke, the purpose of John's ministry was to call people to repentance through both proclamation and baptism. And I believe that because Luke understood the importance of John's ministry, remember how, how Luke has structured his gospel so far. He has not talked about Jesus apart from John. Other gospel writers didn't do this. Obviously, Luke believes that John has a crucial and critical role in the ministry of, of the people in order to prepare them for Jesus Christ. And so he takes this note from John. He takes this theme of repentance and he continues to emphasize it again and again and again. He beats the same drum that John begins to beat on here in chapter 3 and he will continue to, to emphasize repentance to the end of this gospel and into his next volume, the gospel or the, 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 the book of uh, Acts. So he's going to continue on through the Gospel of Luke, into Acts, showing us how important repentance is. For example, at the very end of Luke's Gospel, Luke records these words from the Savior Himself. After He has died, risen from the grave, He now appears to His disciples, and Luke tells us this in Luke 24, 45-47. That Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third 
and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So did you hear? John is now sent by God to Israel to proclaim that through repentance there is forgiveness of sins. And how does the gospel of Luke end? Jesus sends out his disciples not to Israel, but to all the nations telling them, tell people if they repent, they will be forgiven. And all throughout, as we're going to see the the gospel of Luke, there is example after example of, of people repenting and calls for repenting. And that continues on into the book of Acts. For example, on the day of Pentecost, such an important day in redemptive history. On that day as the Spirit is given, Peter stands up and he preaches this message calling the people of Israel to respond to Jesus whom they've crucified. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter concludes his message like this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then, does this not sound like this morning's text? The people hear this message and then they say, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does that not just sound like John's ministry? He preaches about Jesus. The people say, what shall we do? Repent. Be baptized. You will be forgiven. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 5, I could give many more examples. I just want to give you a few more. And and, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29 and 31, we hear these words from Peter. As Peter and the other apostles are told to stop talking about Jesus. And this is what Peter says. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So now we hear Peter saying the same thing when they're told, stop talking about Jesus. We can't. We have been commissioned by the Savior to tell everyone that He is the Lord and we are to call everyone to repentance so that they can be forgiven of their sins. Then we come to the book, or then we come to chapter 11 in Acts. And we can ask the question, okay, so far we've heard about the ministry to Jews. But what about this promise to Gentiles? Are Gentiles going to begin to repent? When Acts chapter 11, Peter is brought before the church to give a testimony that many Gentiles are starting to come to faith. And listen to what he says in verses 16 through 18. 
And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to John that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. So this message of repentance is continuing to spread. In Acts chapter 17, Paul stands before those in Athens who are believing in false gods. And he tells them on that day, all the gods that you are unaware of, I'm here to declare there is one God and He calls you to repent so that you can be forgiven. And then in Acts 26 near the end, Luke ends the story of Paul's ministry by telling us how Paul was called before King Agrippa to to give a testimony to his ministry. And and Paul begins to tell about that day on the road to Damascus and what happened to him as he met the Lord. And he says this, Jesus said to me, rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from, the, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We could continue to look all throughout Luke's gospel, but I wanted to give you a sampling from Luke and Acts, whether it's John or Jesus or his disciples, disciples like Peter, or it's Luke writing both Luke and Acts, or whether it's Paul. All of these people had the same mission, calling to people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And church, this is still our mission today. The mission of Jesus and the mission of John and the mission of His disciples, the mission of Paul, is still the same mission today. And that that's so, and we're to call people to repentance, we need to be able to explain two things. Why is repentance necessary for salvation? What exactly does repentance look like? It can just be a word we throw around. But what does it actually mean? Now, with the time remaining, let's let's go back to chapter 3 of Luke's gospel and look at verses 7 through 14 again. And I want us to, to gain clarity regarding these two questions. Why is repentance necessary for salvation? And what exactly does repentance look like? In order to help us kind of answer these questions and 
kind of make sense of the text, I want to break the text down into two sections. If you're taking notes this morning, here are our points. The call to repentance, verses 7 through 9, and repentance and action, verses 10 through 14. Let's begin with this call to repent in verses 7 through 9. Look again at verse 7. Luke tells us that John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, keep in mind the context here. And remember that Luke is giving us a summary of what occurred. Luke's not telling us all the details, and he's not saying this just happened one time. He's kind of saying, on a whole, this is what it would have sounded like. As as people made their way out to, to John to be baptized, these are the kind of things that were happening. And we're told that crowds were coming. Now, this is a broad statement. It's a broad statement that takes into account that there were people coming to John from many different locations. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Matthew tells us that they're coming from all over that region to John. So we know people are coming from many different locations, and they're coming from many different spheres of influence. For example, we have tax collectors and soldiers. And Matthew tells us that even the the Pharisees and the religious leaders are coming. People are flocking to John. And as they come, John, on probably more than one occasion, as he sees the crowds coming, he says, you brood of vipers. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, remember, Remember, John has a very specific role. John is a prophet, and he's speaking with prophetic language that would sound very familiar to the Old Testament and to the Old Testament hearer. He's speaking in prophetic language in order to grab the attention of his hearers who perceive that they're better off than they really are. If you go back and you read the Old Testament prophets, what did they often do As they spoke to Israel. They spoke to them in very striking terms. Why? Because they were trying to insult them. No. They were trying to throw cold water in their face. These people were often coming. Saying things like. We're the people of God. We're the people of God. We have the temple. And and Jeremiah is saying. You say you're the people of God. You say you're children of Abraham. And you continue to commit um, idolatry, you continue to, to not pay your neighbor what you should pr- pay him and promise to pay him, but yet you care nothing. You don't care that you're worshiping other idols. You don't care that you're living in, 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 in a way of injustice because, hey, you're the people of God. And often the prophets would say, you're not the people of God. You need to wake up. And that's what John's doing here. He's helping them to see, hey, you may not be who you think you are. As you're flocking here, let me give you a dose of reality. You need to see yourself clearly if you're going to get in this water. If you're going to receive this message of forgiveness, you you need to know who you really are. But there's probably a second reason that that Luke records these words. That Jesus said, you brood of vipers. In Matthew's account of this same passage and this same event, 
He tells us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to be baptized. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then everything from verse 8 through 10 is everything we just read in Luke's account. So this is a summary statement. Luke's not saying every time people came, these are the only words John spoke to introduce everything. But probably on a number of occasions, as people are coming out, he's saying, do you know who you really are? Let's be clear on who you really are. You have pride in thinking you're one thing and you're not. And notice then what John does next. He asked them this question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he throws out this striking statement that probably got all their attention. He says, why are you here? You're here because you're wanting to flee the wrath to come. But why? Why are you here? Do, do you know what really brought you to this place? And then he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do you see what John's doing here? He's asking them to consider what they believe will save them. Are you coming because you think baptism is going to save you? Are you coming because you believe repentance is going to save you? John's letting them know, hey, listen, if you're coming here to be baptized thinking that me placing you in the water and you going down and coming up is going to make you right with God, let me just let you know, wrong. Turn around and go back where you came from. Or at least change your heart. Because this water is not going to do anything for you. See, John is informing the crowds that real repentance, which is evident in people's life, is the true sign of genuine conversion. That's the real sign. Hey, you can say whatever you want with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You can come and you can be baptized. But do you mean it? See what John's doing? Hey, all are welcome. But don't dare think that just because you did these acts or you said these things, you're good to go. I got to warn you. Don't go any further if you're not aware what, what you're committing to and what you're confessing and what you're doing. And then in the rest of verse 8 into 9, John addresses one more point of a potential deception on the part of the people coming to be baptized. Listen to what he then says next. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what's John getting at here? 
Many people were coming to John as fellow Jews, thinking that their religious ethnic background put them on good ground. Hey, we're fellow Jews. We're fellow children of Abraham. John says, are you? Is that because you're an Israelite? Because if you understand the Old Testament, those who really are children of Abraham are not the children of Abraham by physical descent, but by faith. Are you really a child of Abraham? See, John quickly dispels this dangerous myth that by letting everyone who was coming know that their family background does not make them a child of Abraham. And then he says, hey guys, listen, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And if you're relying on your family tree right now with the coming of Christ, John says, if you don't have faith in Jesus, that tree's being cut down. So what do we take from this? Friends, hear this. Growing up in a Christian family, going to church, walking an aisle, saying a prayer of salvation and being baptized doesn't make you saved. Now, maybe all those things are true. Maybe you did grow up in a Christian family, praise God. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe at some point you heard a message and an invitation and you walked an aisle and you said a prayer and you are genuinely saved. But you could have done all of those things and not be. So don't be. Let, us let none of us be like those in the crowds that were coming to John thinking, Oh, this is what saves us. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents are Christian. My grandparents were Christian. I got baptized. I got catechized. Whatever your background was. See, salvation in Christ that brings about the forgiveness of sin can only come through repentance. That's what matters. That's what saves. So that raises some questions. What is repentance? If repentance is the only way we can experience forgiveness of sins, then what is it? One of the things that always helps me get at what is something is by saying, what is it not? So what is repentance not? Well, let's be clear. Repentance is not cleaning up ourselves morally or spiritually so we can be right with God. That is not repentance. Repentance is not this idea, I can't come to God until I clean up my mouth. I can't, I can't come to God until I stop doing X. That's works righteousness. It's, it's opposite of the gospel. That is not what repentance is. I got to clean myself up. I got to stop doing X. That's not repentance, brothers and sisters. Nor is repentance just a mere confession of sin followed by a plea of forgiveness. God, I've sinned. Forgive me. That's not necessarily repentance. So what is repentance? If we were to really look at the scriptures, 
and consider how it pictures repentance. What is it? And that's what I want us to do. I, I, want, to, I want us to look at the picture of repentance, not just give you a definition. And here are a few things to consider. First and foremost, repentance is relational. Do you know how many times when the prophets called the people of Israel back to or called them to repentance, you know what their normal phrase was? Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me, says the Lord. See, repentance isn't simply turning from a bad behavior to a good behavior. Repentance is turning to God. Do you remember what... What Gabriel said to Zechariah that his son would do as a prophet, he would turn the people's hearts back to God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is relational. Repentance is people turning to God. But re repentance is also judicial. It's relational. We're turning to God. It's judicial. What do I mean by that? When we're truly repentant, we see our sin and our rebellion against God and we understand that our sin and rebellion deserves His righteous wrath. Do you know what John says? Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, when we're truly repentant, we accept God's verdict regarding our sinful desires and choices Starting with our failure to worship God. See, someone who's truly repentant isn't just saying, I'm sorry, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven, would you forgive me? Somebody who's truly repentant says, oh God, you made me to know you. And from the time you've given me breath until right now, I have lived every moment for myself, doing what pleased me, whether I was moral or immoral, doesn't matter. I wasn't doing it for you. Had no regard for the Creator. And I don't want to live that way anymore. Forgive me. Change me. Redirect me. That's repentance. See, repentance is relational, it's judicial, it's us saying, God, I, I deserve your judgment. You're holy and righteous. I have sinned against you. I don't deserve your mercy. I deserve what I have done. Which has spurned your glory. Lived for myself. Failed to worship you. And then lastly, repentance is active and ongoing. See, when we repent, we're leaving our former way of life because we now want to live for God and bring Him glory. That's what repentance is. Repentance is now saying, God, I, I belong to you. Now I want to live for you. This, this is what it means when John says to bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. See, in repentance, we're doing more than just saying words. We're saying, I actively want to live out my faith. I actively want to live out my faith, which then brings us to another question. You might be thinking at this point, Josh, what about faith alone? I thought the, I thought the Bible 
taught that salvation is by faith alone. Isn't that one of the the keys of the Reformation? Faith alone saves us. You might even be thinking, Josh, at this point, we want to throw a penalty flag because what you're saying doesn't square up with so many of the things the Apostle Paul said, like in, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when he says salvation is by faith alone. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So we could think, well, is Luke contradicting Paul? So is it faith alone? Or is it faith and repentance? Which one is it, Josh? Well, let me just affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that is a gift from God. So then how can repentance be required for salvation if faith is all we need? Well, the first thing to consider is this. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Or maybe let me put it this way. I think this might even help more. Faith and repentance is like inhaling and exhaling. Both are necessary for breathing. You don't just breathe when you're inhaling. Someone who cannot exhale is no longer breathing. We don't pit one over the other. You have to do both to breathe and to be alive. So we're not to separate faith and repentance. And Scripture doesn't separate them. Luke didn't separate them. In Acts 11, verse 21, we're told, And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed faith turned to the Lord. Repentance. So they did what? They believed and they turned. They did both because those are interchangeable. To do one is to do the other. And, and Luke sees how, how so much these two are interconnected that there's times throughout his gospel that he will use one word in the place of the other. They're interchangeable. For example, in Acts 3 verse 19, he says, Repent therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And you want to scream, but you didn't say anything about faith. You just told them to repent and they'll be forgiven. And then... Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, and you want to scream, but you forgot to tell them to repent. Do you get the point? Faith cannot be separated from repentance and vice versa. They go together. And see, the primary reason faith and repentance cannot be separated from one another has to do with the very nature of faith along with the very nature of repentance. Both faith and repentance are what? They're relational. Faith isn't just believing some truths. Okay, I believe I believe in the Bible. I believe there's one God and three persons. I believe in Jesus Christ. Faith is personal. I am trusting in this God. I'm living for this God. I believe this God made me and has redeemed me and wants me to live for him. And that's what repentance is. That's why they're interchangeable. 
And then keep in mind the context of John's words here in Luke 3 about repentance. We can't separate what we're talking about today from the larger, the larger reality. What, what was John's role? John's role in preaching repentance was to do what? To prepare people for the coming of Christ. And he will save them from their sins by becoming their substitute. See, John is not telling people, if you repent, that's what's going to forgive you. No, Christ is going to live a perfect life in your place. He is going to die in your place. And when you repent, you are putting your faith and your trust in Him. And He is going to save you and change you. That's the message that was being preached And that is the message we must receive and understand. See, to put our faith in Christ is to look to Him, to save us, to change us, which means that repentance, repentance is an act of turning to God out of a pure heart. We're not just going through the motions. We're not just thinking, oh, this, this, walking this aisle, saying this prayer, being baptized, doing whatever, that's going to save me. No, God, you're going to save me, and I'm turning to you. You and you alone will save me. So friends, before I go any further, I must ask you this question. According to this biblical definition of repentance, have you repented? Have you repented? What brought you here this morning? Have you repented? May we not be like those who came to the waters for John to baptize them, thinking, well, we're, we're, we're pretty good. We'll, we'll do this act because this is what everybody's doing. That'll make, us, that'll make us even more secure. Listen, I'm glad you're here this morning, but being at church doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. You must repent. You must repent. You must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And the moment you do, listen, this is good news. All your sins are forgiven. And immediately you will experience the peace of God and the presence of God. Have you repented? You turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. And notice, notice the call to repent leads to a response. That brings us now to our second, our second part of this passage, repentance and action, verses 10 through 14. We won't spend long here, but I think there's some important things that occur. Verses 10 through 14 Luke tells us, and the crowd asked them, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. 
and be content with your wages. Think about what John is saying here. When asked this question after preaching this message of repentance, people get it like they did on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so what do we do? And we could read verses 10 through 14 and think that the point is love your neighbor that makes you right with God. Just be a good Samaritan. Give to the poor. Do good to people. Be honest. That's the American gospel. That's not the biblical gospel. The point of application is not be charitable as a person. Be charitable as a church. Because this is what, really what God cares about the most. As long as you're doing those things, you're good. No, the point is this. Our turning to God should turn our everyday life and relationships around. When we've turned to God, it's, it's going to turn everything around. That's why the Apostle John in his first letter says, you can't say, I love God and hate your brother. To do one is going to affect the other. The other. In other words, repentance has not only vertical implications, it has horizontal implications. See, when we've truly repented, it, it's, it's visible to people. It changes relationships. It changes how we treat people and engage people. A few observations here really quickly. In verses 10 through 14, Luke, Luke is highlighting a theme we're going to come back to again and again in his gospel. So I'm just going to let you kind of know that this is one of his themes, but I'm not going to comment on it a lot now. But one of the things he's addressing in 10 through 14 is generosity over greed. Luke is going to say more about generosity over greed. He's going to speak more about money than any of the three other gospel writers. And he's already giving us a preview of this theme. But I just want to make one final observation from John's interaction with the crowd. Did you notice that the two groups of people that are named... The tax collectors and the soldiers. Did you, did you notice two things which we could just move right past, but we should catch it. Did you notice, first of all, they're not turned away? Now, I'm sure there are probably people gathered around that, that body of water where John was baptizing and thinking, what are they doing here? I know you said there's, there's forgiveness of sins, but not for people like that. And yet, they're not turned away. And here's the most surprising thing. When they say, what should we do? John doesn't say, quit your job. <laughs> Stop being a tax collector. Isn't that what you would think he would say? You dishonest crooks. Maybe you should be a prophet like me. No, be a good tax collector. You're a soldier? Be a good soldier. See, one of the things of repentance is repentance is ethical. It's not only relational, it's not only judicial, it's ethical. It changes now the way in which we live. John didn't tell these guys, stop doing the jobs you're doing. He's saying, listen, here's what you're to do. 
Every part of your life is to be transformed by this act of repentance. If it's for real, if you really mean it, then it changes your job, it changes your home, it changes your marriage, it changes how you act with your neighbor. It's no longer, I got two coats, your neighbor doesn't have one. It transforms everything. I love what Dell Davis said. He said, repentance is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in your living an ordinary life in a transformed way. Let me say that again. Repentance is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in you and I living an ordinary life in a transformed way. So here's a question. Does that describe you? Do you live an ordinary life in a transformed way? Is everything about your life now marked by who you belong to? By what he's done for you? That's true repentance. It's now that you belong to the Lord. He has saved you. You are That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17, really through 31. I just want to read 17 through 24. Tell me, does this not sound like so much of today, and does it not bring greater clarity? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, every kind, to practice every kind of impurity, That's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you you hear what repentance looks like and sounds like? Paul's now writing to this church of people who've repented. And he basically says, stop living like the Gentiles. Which means, stop living like unbelievers. You used to be one. And you used to think like one. Darkened in your mind. Hardened in your heart. Living all kinds of ways that you just thought were acceptable and appropriate. That's till Christ saved you. You're not that way anymore. So how could you live like you used to live when you no longer belong to that lifestyle and that life? God has changed you. You've got to live in light of who you are now. You're not that. You're this. So what is repentance? It's putting off and putting on. You hear that language? That's helpful. It's putting off. I'm no longer this person. And it's putting on. I now belong to Christ. I've been saved. My mind's been transformed. I've been renewed in my mind. I have new affections. I'm still a sinner. 
saved by grace. I still struggle. I still need God's help. I still need to grow in sanctification. But I'm not who I used to be. God has changed me. And I want to now live in light of that. That's what repentance on a day-to-day basis looks like. See, all those who belong to Christ must allow the gospel of Jesus to transform the way we live, the way we love, the way we give of our lives and give of our resources. In other words, listen, living in light of who Christ is and what he has done for us, along with remembering who we are in Christ, should transform every aspect of our lives. That's what repentance is. It's now saying, I belong to the Lord. He's changed me. And I want every piece and part and moment of my life to be transformed by Him. So how do we do that as we close? One thing. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul so helpful here when he says these words that I think will serve us today and I pray they will continue to serve us in the days ahead as we make our way through the gospel of Luke. He says, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How do we change? It's not by simply pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not from wallowing in our guilt. You know how we change? Paul says, you can now see the glory of Christ. And the more you look at his glory, the more you take on his glory. So friends, if you and I are not changing, the answer is not get another accountability partner. Read a little bit more of your Bible. The answer is you are not beholding the glory of Christ. Because when we see him as he is, it changes us. And that's going to be the admonition as we make our way through Luke. That we not just look at these stories and try to take away some practical piece of application each week. Oh, okay, so what, what, what exactly do I do? Here, here, let me just tell you right now, there's going to be some specific things. But here's the application for the rest of the book of Luke. Behold his glory. we do that, it will change us. And if we're failing to do that, maybe that's why we're frustrated with change. Maybe that's why we're not changing. Our marriages aren't changing. Our speech isn't changing. Our, 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 our attitudes and our habits aren't changing because we're trying to do it on our own. That's not repentance. Repentance is beholding the glory of God and being transformed by it to every aspect of our life now reflects him. Let's pray. Father, it's one thing to hear these words and this call to repent. It's another thing. It's another thing to 
to truly respond by coming to you and surrendering our lives and allowing you to transform every aspect of our lives. But God, it is what we desire as we sang earlier. That when you move, our lives are changed. So Lord, move in us and help us to not leave here just hearing a message and filing away our sermon notes. Lord, may we be different because we have seen your glory and it's changed us. And Lord, I do ask that there's anyone here this morning who has not repented and experienced the forgiveness of sins and the presence of God through the, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, may today be the day that they repent and believe and are changed and are saved. I pray against the enemy who would want them to resist, make excuses. I pray right now, Lord, you would bind the God of this world who blinds the mind of unbelievers. And that you would allow them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that they would come and they would repent and be changed. Lord, thank you for your word. What a gift it is to us. May it continue to dwell in us throughout the, the week. And may we abide in it. And may we be changed by what we've heard today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.